It's amazing. It's so encouraging to see people being radical and bold and uh, being willing to, to go for it with God. And uh, it's really my joy and privilege to speak into a little bit more what is Grace Connection and who are we and what is God calling us to do. And uh, I appreciate that for many of you that have heard the beginning of this story many times. For some of you, this will be relatively new information, but Grace Connection began because of a move of God. And uh, the Holy Spirit broke in in one of our gatherings and uh, a whole load of people were set free and uh, released into joy and freedom and to experience more of him. And then from that place, we felt kind of a, a recalling to our original vision, which was to be a church like the one in Antioch here in Nottingham, to send people to plant churches, to plant other Antioch bases in Birmingham, Manchester, soon to be Newcastle. And uh, God started it. So we blame him. <laughs> and, and when it gets tough, we, we call out to him and say, God, you have to finish what you started, but this is God's initiative. And I want to reiterate that because I think it's important to know why are we going to be Grace Connection? Well, the grace part, at least to begin with, is this is God's gift to us. It's his initiative. We haven't earned it. We haven't sought after it. We haven't come up with an amazing strategy and thought, let's do this and let's start planting churches all over the place and connect with Malawi, which, by the way, is a very unusual first international connection (laughs) when there's only like two of you originally. But we're doing it because God's in it. And that would be one of my own reflections from coming back from Malawi was just thinking, God is here. And it's been so encouraging to partner with Scriven and Annie in Blantyre to think that what we want to do here, they want to do there. And so they have a mission to establish a city centre base in Blantyre and plant and plant and plant and plant and reach all kinds of people who would not otherwise hear the gospel, which I think is phenomenal. But we're Grace Connection because we start with grace. And also as we go and as we look to preach the gospel, we are attempting to preach the doctrines of grace. That I have not earned my salvation. That if you know Jesus, you have not found him, he has found you. That that's an incredible message to preach. That is an incredible message that so many people need to hear. And then as we preach it, and as we lay Christ as a foundation, we get to cultivate a culture of grace that every single person in this room has a role to play if we are truly to be Grace Connection. Because this isn't just a, a Steve, Ben, Emily, you know, Rick and Cheryl and Duncan, a few key individuals who are going to go on some adventures. This is something that every single one of us can get involved in. Because it's by grace. Because it's God's gift, it's God's call, it's his initiative, it's the thing that he is doing, and I believe what I'm going to speak on this morning is try and catch us up, all of us, into his great mission, his great plan, and his great purposes. But we're also a connection. And so I loved Chris's video. Chris, by the way, I think did an amazing job knocking that together in about a week. That was, uh, that was phenomenal. But just to see something of the beginnings of what we're doing. We, we are a family doing this together here in the UK and in Malawi. And uh, Paul writing to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 3, he says to them, you are in our hearts to die together 
and to live together. And what that means is we're better together. That when it goes well for the guys in Manchester, when they are baptizing six people, we all get to celebrate. We live together. When it's going well here, when it's going well in Birmingham, hopefully there's a collective sense of let's celebrate, let's praise God, let's cheer one another on. We're family together. And less positive to dwell on, we die together. That when, when we're searching for venues, that when times are tough, when things are hard, we pray. And we support one another, encourage one another. We are supposed to be family together. That is our New Testament blueprint. That's how Paul did it. Spoke about mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, sons, daughters. We're one family pursuing him. And Paul also, when he wrote to the Philippians, chapter 1, verse 5, says, I thank God for your partnership in the gospel. That's why we are being family together. That's why we have this connection. It's fun. I love going on bouncy castles. You'll find me out there later, <laughs> bobbling around with Poppy and Phoebe, I'm sure. But it's more than just that. It's more than just once a year we gather in this room and have a great old celebration. We are on mission. We are partners together in the gospel. There are more people in this nation who we need to reach. And I totally appreciate there are some amazing churches, amazing networks. The kingdom of God is vast and glorious and good, and we want to partner with them and cheer them on. And we have a unique, call to, a unique part to play in this big vision. And if we don't get hold of what God is doing with us, we may well miss out on his call for us as a people. However, if you said to me, Steve, do you think this is going to happen? My answer 100% is yes, I do. They think, well, that's good that you've got a lot of confidence. Good that they've thrown you up on the stage that you can go 100% yes. (laughs) But the reason why is because this is a God-initiated thing. Because it isn't really based on me or us to achieve it. God is going to build his kingdom. God is going to establish his church. He is going to do all the work. Which is pretty good news. It's quite a weight off your shoulders when you're thinking about church planting, that Jesus is on the throne, that he is ruling and reigning, that he is in charge, and that he builds his church. I tell you, remind yourself of that promise daily. He is in charge. And he has spoken to us about having an open door for ministry. When he opens a door, no man can shut it. That he spoke more recently through Isaiah 43, that behold, I am doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? He is the one who can bring waters in the wilderness. That when he speaks, creation happens. When he speaks kingdom advance, it happens. That's why I can be outrageously bold up here on the stage. That this is going to happen. We are going to be on his mission. We are going to plant churches. We are going to see people saved because Jesus goes before us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Isn't that good news? We just get to get caught up on his mission. And at the same time, in terms of thinking about, is there any way that we could miss out on this? I still do think that's a possibility. And really, that's what I want to focus in on today. As I open up something, I want to turn to 1 Samuel. So if you have Bibles and and apps and things, turn to the book of 1 Samuel. 
Because I want to look at three life circumstances, instances in the life of King Saul, a man who also had the promises of God at his disposal, and yet somehow he missed out on the plans and purposes of God for him and for his generation. And in some ways, what I want to look at is, let's look at three ways that Saul essentially messed it up so that we make sure we don't. And I appreciate with a message like this, ultimately, of course, the direct application of how do you apply this, how do you take this, is you draw a line from Saul to Jesus. The better Saul, the king we've been waiting for, the, the, the man ultimately after God's own heart is the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet at the same time, I think it was, again, Paul in, uh, in First Corinthians said, these, these stories, these these uh, historic events recorded for us are written for our instruction. That there is wisdom within these passages that we can gain, that we may follow Christ all the more fully. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to dive into three, three different chapters in the, in the life of King Saul. We're going to go for chapter 10 first and uh, verse 20 and look at his insecurity. Then we're going to jump ahead to 1 Samuel 13 and look at his presumption, and then we'll finish in uh, 1 Samuel 15 with his partial obedience. And I think there'll be three lessons that we can draw from his life to make sure we inherit all the plans and promises God has for us. So, beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 10, uh, Saul has already been anointed the king of Israel by Samuel the prophet. He's already had oil placed on him. He's had the word of God. He's the call of God. But here we find his public anointing. And they're about to cast lots, uh, essentially so that the whole nation will know Saul is chosen by God. This isn't just Samuel's good idea. It's not Saul's good idea. This is God's initiative. So 1 Samuel uh, chapter 10, verse 20. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. And they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. It's almost comical. The fact that Saul has been anointed as the king of Israel. This is not a surprise to him. He knows that it's about to happen. He knows that his name is going to be taken by Lot. He is called of God. And yet when it comes to the public unveiling, he plays a game of hide and seek. He hides in the baggage, in the kit. Who knows where he is, in a little tent, in a chest. They can't find him, though, because they have to ask God for a prophetic word to know where 
Saul is hiding. I would have loved to have been the person who received this word from the Lord. Check the baggage. They sent envoys to find Saul hiding. I have no idea what was going through his mind. This is not a long-term plan. I can't imagine that he, he thought longer than about half an hour into proceedings. He thought, if I can just hide here long enough, everyone will just disperse and they'll forget about me. Unfortunately for him, they find him. And they haul him out, and he has some natural uh, kind of abilities in the sense that he's, he's, he's a man of stature. And, and Samuel says, look at him. This is the man that God has chosen for you to be king, and they proclaim him king. But his reign doesn't get off to the most auspicious of starts. He's deeply insecure. He's hiding in the baggage. He is not really owning or accepting the call of God on his life. When we moved to Birmingham, we had an opportunity, I had an opportunity to begin to preach and articulate vision for who we were and what we were going to do. And if I'm honest, I actually found it quite a difficult thing to do. I found myself getting a little bit nervous because I began to think, what if I can't deliver what I'm promising? If I, if I gather the team and start saying, we're going to see loads of people saved, we're going to be having baptisms, we're going to do this, that, and the other, what if I can't deliver it? And you'll notice the use of my pronoun in thinking like that. What if I can't do this? My thinking of, but what is God going to do had kind of dissipated. But I have no idea if this was what was going on for Saul in his particular circumstances, but I can only imagine that as he thought, what is it going to be like to be the king of Israel? I am not going to be enough for this. I'm not going to be able to win the battles. I'm not going to be able to defeat the Philistines. I'm not going to have the wisdom to rule and lead a people. I am not up to this. It wasn't up to him. Yahweh was king of Israel. They already had a king who was already in charge, who was already going to do all that he said he was going to do, but Saul had missed it and was insecure. Even more recently, I was meeting with some church leaders in Birmingham, and I was asked the question, what are you part of? And inwardly, I'd already had the private, I guess, anointing of we are Grace Connection and this is what we're called to do and this is who we are. But I found it really difficult to say it out loud because I thought, oh, that's a bit bold. It's a bit brazen, perhaps, to say we're a family of churches and we're going to be planting more churches and we've got this partnership with Malawi and isn't it wonderful? And I thought I'll be more humble to play it all down. Unfortunately for me, I later discovered it wasn't so much humility as fear. I thought, I'm not sure I can say this out loud. It was false humility. And false humility is no humility at all. Because if you are not willing to take God at his word and speak it out, that is not humility. Saul was not being humble. It's probably more obvious to see it in his life. You think hiding in the bags is not humility, it's insecurity. And so was unable to get through to a place of genuinely owning the call of God on his life and on his nation. And it's Samuel and others who have to find him and drag him out and help him to stand up. 
But as I was preparing this message, I essentially, I felt the encouragement from God for us today that today is a day to stand up. That we don't have to hide in the baggage. We don't have to hide away. Because perhaps for you, maybe there's individuals here in this room where you know there's a call of God on your life. And there may be a part of you that is tempted to hide. There may be a part of you that's tempted to think, but I am not enough for that calling. I am not going to be enough to fulfill it. But God is able. He is able to use weak people. He is able to use broken people. He is able to use, he's able to use hurting people. When we turn our attention away from ourselves and up to him, all things become possible. How can I be so confident as I stand on this stage and say, hey, Grace Connection is going to happen? It doesn't depend on me. It doesn't depend on Duncan or Ben or Rick or Cheryl or anyone else. He is going to do this thing. And just as I'm beginning to lay this out, I want to encourage you as you hear the promises, as you hear the vision, as you kind of begin to understand what we're trying to do, to mingle that with faith. I think, I'm going to pray for this. I'm going to speak about this. I'm going, to, I'm going to go into my workplace and tell people about Jesus. I'm going to go home and I'm going, to, I'm going to build my life on this word. I am going to own the promises of God over my life. And I just want to encourage you, anyone here this morning, who, who you kind of know God's got plans for you, to step into them. And I think the only way that you're able to do that is by stepping back slightly and realising Jesus Christ died for my sin and yours. That's how you get security. Jesus Christ has given everything to have you and me. That is ultimately a deal breaker. It means I no longer need the approval of anyone else. I no longer need the acceptance that comes from anyone else. I no longer need anything external to me to give me a sense of self-identity. I am loved. How do I know? Scripture tells me the Holy Spirit has put it in my heart. Jesus has won me. Jesus has won you. How are we ever going to achieve anything for God? You rest in that pretty simple fact. Jesus is king. We get our security from him. So that's the first way that we could potentially miss out on inheriting all these promises if we let insecurity reign. If we think, I'm going to hide. I'm going to stop. I'm going to be in the baggage. Let's not be like Saul. The second instance I'm going to look at in his life is from 1 Samuel 13. So you want to flick ahead. 1 Samuel 13 and verse 8. where Saul ends up being quite presumptuous. His son Jonathan has uh, attacked and defeated a Philistine garrison. The Philistines have sent their armies to fight against Israel. And uh, Saul, and we're not told explicitly, but you kind of read between the lines, knows he is not allowed to make an offering. Samuel has to come, and Samuel will make the offering. However, for Saul, this is quite problematic because he is not allowed to engage in battle until he has the Lord's favour. So he's waiting for Samuel, and we're going to read from verse 8. He waited seven days 
the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favour of the Lord. So I forced myself and and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul, I guess in one sense, is in a situation which we can have a lot of sympathy for. He's surrounded. The armies are assailing him. His own army is fleeing. They're legging it. He wants God's favour, and Samuel hasn't arrived. And after seven days of waiting, he takes matters into his own hands, and he takes the burnt offering and the peace offering, and he offers up the burnt offering. And once again, it's almost comical, if it wasn't so serious, that when Samuel arrives and says, hey, Saul, how are you? How are you doing? Essentially, Saul's answer is, everything's great. It's great to, it's great to have you here, Samuel. We're ready. We're going to go and attack those Philistines. You haven't done any offerings, have you? <coughs> oh, yeah, I guess. Um, well, there was that one burnt offering <laughs> that I offered. What have you done, says Samuel, that you have disobeyed the Lord's command. And essentially Saul rehearses, recapitulates the whole story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That he has the command of God, the word of God, and he disobeys. He's, he's tempted, he's fearful, he's acting not by faith, but what he can see. My army's fleeing, they're coming, I have to do this. And as Samuel arrives, he has a whole host of excuses. He doesn't get on his knees and repent and say, oh God, what have I done? He says, well, you have to understand, Samuel, you hadn't arrived yet. It's kind of your fault. It's like blaming. And again, you've got to have a bit of sympathy me because, I mean, the army were leaving and we were outnumbered. And uh, Come on, I really wanted the Lord's favour can't blame me for doing one little offering. But Samuel's judgment, God's judgment, is you have acted foolishly. Or in other translations, it says you fool. And initially, again, we can read it and think, oh, it's a, bit, a little bit unfair on Saul. I mean, he's only trying to do his best, wasn't he? But Psalm 14, verse 1, says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Saul has acted as if God were not in charge. He has been motivated by fear. He has been affected by his circumstances. 
and he has acted presumptuously. He's taken matters into his own hands rather than wait on God. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you have been waiting for God to pull through for you. Where you've been waiting and waiting and waiting and you kind of, I've, I've, you know, for sort of, I'm waiting for Samuel, but he just isn't arriving. When is God going to turn up? You know, how many times have people moved jobs or homes or made a big life decision and you think, did you really hear from God on that? It's just, well, I just, I ran out of time waiting. I had to do it. How many times, even in churches, can we get into situations where we appoint a leader? You think, why did you do that? Well, we had to have someone. We're running out of time. People were leaving. This was happening. Circumstances weren't looking great. I tell you, how Grace Connection is never going to happen is if we act presumptuously. Is if we think, we have got to make this happen. So quick, let's get Rick and Cheryl out there and then we need to find anyone. Let's, I'll throw a paper aeroplane. Whoever it lands on, you'll go next. That's going to be our strategy. <laughs> you think that's, that's crazy. What a ridiculous scenario. Sometimes we, our thinking is not too far from that. Anyone will do. We just got to get this thing going. We are not doing this. Our job is to wait on God and pray and seek him and say, we are not moving until you come. And say, we are going to build our lives on your word and what you say and how you command us. And we are not going to take matters into our own hands. God is in charge. He's promised us, Isaiah 43, this is his work, it's a new thing. The cross is our guarantee. We have no need for presumption. He's with us. Because often I think the trouble we get into is we think we are more concerned about making this happen than God is. Which is a ludicrous place to be, but it so often happens. I don't know where God is. Where is he? No, he is far more committed to this than we are. Utterly the other way around. He has given everything to have us as his people. He will never forsake us. He will never let us go. He will never give up on us. He has begun this. He is continuing it. He will finish it. Amen, Jeremy. Yes. (laughs) I don't know why this keeps going down. I'm just going to... There we go. Thanks, Mike. While Mike's doing that, let's turn to 1 Samuel 15. My final one. 1 Samuel 15, verse 7. Again, this is, a, this is a historic moment. Uh, God has sent Saul to avenge the people of God against the Amalekites who had thwarted the people of God as they travelled through, uh, through Egypt or out of Egypt through the desert to Sinai. The Amalekites had prevented them and stopped them getting where they needed to go and had not repented. And they are once again at war. And Saul has a very clear instruction which to our modern ears is quite difficult to hear, but essentially is to wipe them all out. Don't spare anyone and destroy all their flocks. Well, let's read how Saul gets on, chapter 15, verse 8. But he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep. 
and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Once more, Saul does not obey the Lord's commandment. And previously, in, the, in, the, in chapter 13, he was told that because he disobeyed, his, his dynasty wouldn't be on the throne, that, that his son wouldn't be on the throne. Here, ultimately, his whole kingdom is torn from him. He has obeyed partially, but not fully. And we didn't read it, but it's yet another comical interaction between Samuel and Saul when Samuel arrives to see the state of play and says to Saul, have you done everything that God commanded you? Saul says, yes, I have, Samuel. This time I've nailed it. (laughs) And Samuel says to him, what is the sound of the bleating I can hear in my ears? And we won't, just for the sake of time, we won't go through all of their, their interplay, but partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. And, and, and Saul, again, comes with all kinds of excuses. He said, well, the men wanted to take the animals, and I didn't want to stop them. And actually, and again, we kind of did it for God, because some of them we sacrificed, and we did it to him. So really, God, God can't be too displeased with us. But Samuel's judgment is final. And as we read this story in the Old Testament, you kind of think ahead to, but how do we apply this to ourselves in the New Testament? Our fight is not against flesh and blood, but it's against sin, against powers and principalities that we have a call from God to ruthlessly destroy sin in our lives. And yet, how often do we live where we think, yeah, I'll deal with that, I'll deal with that, but maybe not that area. I'll I'll just leave that for a little bit later on. And yet still kind of think to ourselves a little bit, but surely God's going to be pleased, because I did most of the job. I did 80%. Or again, from my own experience, sometimes I feel God would speak to me, and maybe he'd say something like, you should give this sum of money away. And I'll have a rise of faith, and I think, hey, I'm going to do it. And then if I don't action it quick enough, my common sense kicks in. I think, oh, but I have got a mortgage to pay. Did I really think about that fully in the moment? And what about this? And it's a really good thing to be wise. I'm not saying we should be naive and just do things on a whim. But equally, we can talk ourselves out of faith. And a number of times in my own life, I've thought God say to me, you should do this. And then about a week later, I've just sensibilized it, which is not a word, but <laughs> I've, I've, just, I've just toned it down. I've, I've made it more reasonable. But we are called to be a radical people who obey God no matter what. But sometimes we can think to ourselves, I am going to be committed to this word, to this book. I'm going to do it. And then some situation confronts us and we think, "Mm, it would make me quite unpopular to say what this book says. 
I'll just downplay it. Now, again, I am not saying we shouldn't be culturally insensitive. We should work really, really hard to win our hearers in all things. But this comes first. And Saul doesn't really get it. He compromises. He comes up with a host of excuses. And I think deep down, essentially, he didn't really trust God to provide, to come through, and to make his life actually ultimately better as a king. And I think that is how we often face the the choice of being obedient or being disobedient or being partially obedient is we begin to weigh up the pros and cons of obedience. And we think, yeah, but if I am obedient, this will be good, this will be good, I don't have any guilt, and I'd like that, but oh, I would kind of like to keep my money, or I'd like to do this with my time, or, you know. A battle begins to rage. Do I believe that God is good? Do I believe that obeying him is always best? And uh, I kind of love the story, again, in the Gospels, where Jesus encounters a rich young man who comes to him and kind of talks of his own self-righteousness. And Jesus says to him, I tell you what, to come and follow me, sell everything, give it to the poor, then come. And he goes away sad. And you think, my goodness, that is a high bar for following Jesus. And unfortunately, Jesus says, you know, what is impossible with men is only possible with God. And then Peter comes along, slightly, I would argue, defensively, and say, Jesus, we've given away a fair bit. Maybe not everything. We've given away a fair bit to come and follow you. We've counted the cost of obedience in wanting to be your disciples. And Jesus says to the disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, anyone who's given up homes or houses, husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, brothers and sisters, will receive in this life and in the one to come a hundredfold. God knows how to bless his people. Every time we, we, we sacrifice, we pay the cost of obeying God, God will always come through for us. Our Heavenly Father knows how to give good gifts. He gave his son who died in our place, took our sin, bore away our iniquity, there is no greater gift. As it's Pentecost Sunday, I feel like I should just throw in as a little freebie, he gave the Holy Spirit as a free gift to us. Our Father in heaven knows how to give good gifts. When we are obedient to him, he will always pull through for us. We never have to doubt his faithfulness, his goodness, his kindness, his love. Whenever we are faced, do I obey God or do I just kind of obey God? (laughs) Obey God! (laughs) He will always come through for you. Unfortunately, Saul doesn't really get it. And he compromises. And the kingdom is torn from his grip. And as we finish... I think we have to just look again at verse 11 where God says, I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. God didn't change his mind. 
but is sad he is now unable to use Saul. See, God did not change his mind. God did not give up on Saul. Saul is fully responsible for his own actions and attitudes. And if I were God, which you'd be pleased to know I am not, I would have ended Saul right there and then. I'd just let him drift off into, you know, obscurity. Just raised up a new king. But if you keep reading 1 Samuel, it's the most back and forth, chasing around mountains, hiding in caves story you've ever read in your life. You think, God, why did you allow Saul such a long reign when he'd already blown it? I think because our God is kind and compassionate and gracious and was giving Saul a chance to repent, which he never took. But God is not swift to judgment and anger and giving up on us. And I just, I wanted to throw that in, even though it's not really a main part of my message, just to anyone here today who think, but I've already blown it. My life, I've already stuffed it up. If you repent and turn back to God, you can be included again and again and again. I think another narrative, another way one Samuel could have played out was that Saul repented and got before God and then laid hands on David and anointed him to be king and they did it kind of together. Our sovereign God is fully in control and takes in his stride our choices and actions, adjusts his plans when necessary, and yet still achieves his ultimate aims. Do you know that as you read through the life of Saul, God is well able to cope with his sin and his mess and is still able to achieve his ultimate aims? God is in charge. How can I be so bold and so brazen to stand up here and say grace connection is going to happen? We are going to plant more churches. We're going to see more people saved. We're going to be preaching the gospel. It's because God is going to get all the glory. Because God is going to do this. I think the question for us is do we want to be in on it? I want to be in on it. It's interesting to know that God uses Israel's dubious choice of asking for a king. Because if you get in, if you know the story, they were ultimately rejecting God. They we want our own king, like the nations have got. He takes their dubious choice of asking for a king as the basis for his rich messianic blessing. I love that quote. He takes their dubious choice of having a king and uses it to bring about the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Saul was not the ultimate king. David was not even the ultimate king. Jesus is the ultimate king. That the line that we're supposed to draw from this passage is not to ourselves, is not to grace connection, is to Jesus. He is the king who goes into battle on behalf of his people and always wins. He is the man after God's own heart. He is the man who is utterly secure in all he does, who has no presumption, who is fully obedient to his Father in heaven. He only ever does what his Father does. He only ever says what his Father says. He was not partially obedient. He was fully obedient, even to the point of death on a cross for you and me. He has shed his blood that he might have us. 
He's in charge. He, he is the fulfillment of all that we've been looking at. He is the reason we can actually have hope. Because if my message was simply, come on, everyone, be secure, be obedient, don't be presumptuous, we'll have a great time, most of us would fail. Not with Jesus. Because he pours out his Holy Spirit into our lives to actually change us to live this out. Isn't that amazing? I mean, isn't that some good news, that we don't have to do this just by trying really hard? He is committed to working it into us. And yet we still have a choice to let him in, to come and shape us, to fall on our knees and repent, to pray, to seek him. Do I think that all that we're dreaming of and believing for is going to happen? Yes, I do. Do I think all of us are going to be a part of it? I really hope so. Do I think I'm going to be part of it? I really hope so. What's my choice? Follow Jesus wholeheartedly. And he will keep me safe. And he will bring me through. He will bring you through. And I just, I felt this morning, is a morning for us to stand up and to put on faith and say, Jesus, you are the king. You are sovereign. You are in charge. This is your church. This is your initiative. Come and help us. It's an opportunity for us to cry out for mercy and say, on our own, we can't do this. Who can? That Saul is an example written for our instruction. I don't want to end up like him. I want to put my confidence firmly, fully, totally in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's not just a historic past work, but it's a today and ongoing work. He lives to intercede for us. And so as the band come back up, we're going to have an opportunity to finish by worshipping, by putting our attention where it should be on God. There may well be specific responses you feel you need to make. There may well be a call of God on your life where you think, I don't want to hide anymore. I want to step up and I need Jesus to help me. There may be a part of your life where you think, I have not really listened to God's voice in this. I've acted presumptuously. You might want to say, God, come and speak to me. Come and help me. There might be an area of your life where you think, I'm not necessarily being obedient here. Come and lay it at his feet. Come and receive forgiveness today. And we can have a lot of fun going on a bouncy castle, having picnics. There is nothing better than being forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. I do it. We all need to do it on a daily basis. And then the final thing I want to do is, as we begin to worship is invite Ben and Becca Allen to come out of the front, which is a little bit of news we saved. I know some of you will know this, but where are they? There you know. Come out of come out of the front there. Let's give them a round of applause. Maybe Ben and Emma could come and keep them company so they don't feel too isolated and I'll hold them out the front. <laughs> but I thought this, this couple are a perfect embodiment of all that I've been speaking about. That they have heard the call of God on their lives to move to Malawi for a year. To serve. <laughs> yeah, I hope that's not news to you. This is a prophetic, <laughs> prophetic anointing. out of obedience 
So I'm sure they would say, we don't know quite what we're going to do. We don't know quite how it's going to work. We don't know how we're going to do this. But it's not based on what they can do. It's on what God can do. And he is with you. And he is on you. And he's going to help you. He's going to bless you. But I just I wanted to get them out as an example to all of us to think, here's just one example of what faith looks like in action. And our calls may be very different. We think, I'm never moving to Malawi for a year. No, thank you very much. But what's God put on your heart? This is what God's put on their heart. So a few people, I think, are going to come and pray and lay hands on them and bless them. We want to send them out. They're going this September, not 2020, this September. So we're going to bless them. But the rest of us, shall we stand?